Airlines Confidential with Ben Valdanza and Chris Chimes is made possible with the support of Pratt & Whitney, whose GTF engines are redefining aviation. Learn more at pwgtf.com. Aerodata, the leading edge in flight performance data. Visit aerodata.co. Aerodata is a Garmin company. Sidley Austin, the destination law firm for leading airlines and aviation companies. Visit sidley.com aviation. And Seabury Securities, global reach, global scale. seaburysecurities.com. We also welcome your business's support. Info at airlinesconfidential.com. Airlines Confidential is on the taxiway heading for takeoff. I'm Ben Baldanza, and thanks for joining us. And I'm Chris Chimes. We're going to continue our discussion about intermodal transportation on airports this week. If you haven't listened to the episode 161 and our discussion with David Sunday from Landline, please do so. And then this week, after we cover off the news, we're going to talk to Steve Schur from Hertz about their electric vehicle initiatives and how that will play out at airports around the U.S. But first up, some news, and let's stick with things that fly for a moment, but not necessarily airplanes. Amazon has previewed its next generation of delivery drones. They're five and a half feet in diameter, 80 pounds. They can fly 12 kilometers round trip, about seven and a half miles, at up to 50 miles per hour. The drones will drop packages from 12 meters in the air, about 40 feet, They'll start making deliveries in College Station, Texas, and Lockford, California by the end of this year, and Amazon expects to deliver 500 million packages by drone globally by 2030, not too far off. Ben, I know Amazon has been talking about this for a while, but when you actually get a sense for the process and the procedure and the product, how do you think this will be received across the aviation sector and even by consumers? I think everyone's going to be watching it really closely, Chris. The thing that kind of surprised me about that announcement is that they could drop the packages about 40 feet. Obviously, they're not going to be dropping packages with any sort of breakable items in them. And whether or not they're going to make stronger cardboard boxes to support this idea or whether, in fact, the drones will lower more and they won't drop them that far. But I think the idea of Amazon delivering by drones has been in the psyche for a while. So to see that they're actually starting it, have some stations in mind, and are going to be working out the kinks is, in fact, very exciting. In fact, I've said to multiple people this year that I'm looking forward to the first time I order from Amazon and I see it dropped off on my porch from a drone as opposed to a delivery driver. And I know it's probably a while before that happens, but it sounds like it's in the next five years or so based on this announcement. So I'm guessing everyone's just going to be watching this closely to see what works, what doesn't. Are they able to sort of avoid any sort of in-air problems? Are they able to have no conflict at all with general aviation, other aviation because of where they fly 
and the altitudes they fly and things like that and sort of what the actual delivery process looks like because not only is everybody going to be watching them to see what happens there, but what they could do for their businesses too. Yeah, I was trying to find out if there were going to be like safe zones around airports, even general aviation airports, as well as commercial airports, but some of the more detailed parts of this, but I, I couldn't find anything. Maybe there's more discussion out there. I was like you with the 40 feet from the air. I've lived in Dallas now for six and a half years. We have never taken the Dallas Morning Newspaper since I moved back there. But at least once a month, there is a Dallas Morning Newspaper somewhere in my front lawn thrown by the, <laughs> the thrown by the paper delivery service. And so I'm thinking like, you know, are we going to have like packages dropped in backyard, the wrong backyards and whatever else? But I'm certain that there's much smarter people than I am to uh, to manage this and build out a system. And, you know, perhaps like a package in the backyard might be safer than a package on the porch, for example. Well, that's right. Um, the other thing about this that I thought was interesting, Chris, was the seven and a half mile round trip load for these. That suggests to me that these things might be launched from other Amazon vehicles. Perhaps, for example, a vehicle will move into a neighborhood and then a group of drones will leave that car and go to all the houses in that neighborhood, then return to that vehicle, and then the vehicle can drive to another place to launch another set rather than them doing everything directly from a distribution center or something like that. I'm making that up. I don't know if Amazon's thinking of that, but the seven and a half mile round trip limits it somewhat. You know, they've got a lot of distribution centers, but there's not that many that close, which suggests that these drones are going to be used in concert, I think, with some land-based vehicles. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, I just keep thinking about either the flying monkeys from The Wizard of Oz or <laughs> nasty seagulls on the Jersey Shore, one of the two, <laughs> as they get launched from, from distribution trucks or something else. But I think it's interesting to watch. Like you said, they've been talking about this for a while. It's going to clearly impact airspace in some ways that we don't yet know. And so we'll have to watch it and see what happens. Looking southward to the nation of Colombia, the Colombian Civil Aeronautics Authority has objected to the merger of that nation's number one and number three carriers, Avianca and Viva Air. While the merger isn't completely dead, the regulatory action creates major roadblocks and it also has the potential to sidetrack Avianca's strategy of creating a pan-South American airline, which would also include Brazilian carrier Gol and Chile's Sky Airline to compete with LATAM. So, Ben, is the action by the aviation authorities justified or short-sighted as it relates to long-term Colombian aviation interests? You know, I'm not sure, Chris, but I have to say when that merger was announced, it surprised me. Avianca carries about half or more of the traffic within Colombia, and Viva has been a strong competitor, lowering fares as ULCCs do within the country. So I was surprised that 
two carriers that collectively carry so much of the domestic Colombian travel would even think about merging. Now, in their announcement, they all talked about Viva failing. And in fact, even in Avianca's reaction to the regulatory authorities saying, we don't like this, the Avianca response was, would you rather have Viva just collapse and none of those jobs be protected and all those planes go to another country. So they're basically saying Viva is not stable as it is. The merger with Avianca will actually protect Colombia rather than consolidate it. And I think that's an interesting argument, whether that's enough to sort of pull this through or pull this through with maybe some other features like offering some more gates at places like Bogota and Medellin to competitors or something like that. But to go to your first question, I'm not surprised the Civil Aeronautic Authority rejected this idea, but I do feel there's something compelling about the idea that Maybe Avianca Viva together is better than Avianca and no Viva if they really would collapse without this merger. In terms of creating Abra, which is the name they've put to their pan-South American airline, I don't think it really affects that strategy that much because whether it's just Avianca sort of creating alliances with Brazil and Chile and maybe someday Mexico or Avianca plus Viva, I don't think it changes that idea that much. Yeah, that failing firm strategy and defense is always a dangerous card to play. So I saw that too and kind of winced. If it's true, uh, that would be regretful, obviously. But um, you don't want to go there unless you really have to. Um, I I also read this as Colombian officials choosing the interests of Colombians versus the interests of making Colombia a bigger aviation center by, you know, building up this combined carrier so that they could uh, build this pan-South American empire. Uh, Colombia would have a much bigger role in South American aviation, but it looks like at this point, Officials are more concerned about the impact on Colombians. So um, we'll have to see how this plays out. Yeah, and I'm guessing we're going to talk about this again on a future show when there's the next news that comes out of there. Well, this week's show is brought to you by Pratt & Whitney, a world leader in aircraft engines, helicopter engines, and auxiliary power units. The Pratt & Whitney GTF engine is the only geared propulsion system delivering industry-leading sustainability and dependable world-class operating costs. With up to 20% less fuel and CO2 emissions, the GTF engine has revolutionized commercial aviation and set the foundation for more sustainable aviation. Learn more at pwgtf.com. And load planning for any operation is complex and time-consuming. Aerodata can help. Aerodata's load planning solutions computerize and automate the entire load planning process, streamlining workloads, optimizing load distribution, 
enabling airlines to maximize their payloads, and ultimately eliminating potential delays by flagging flights that require extra attention. The solutions also integrate with reservation systems, cargo vendors, baggage scanning, container operations, and more. Visit aerodata.co to learn more and connect with your Aerodata team. Ben, last news item for the week. Topic is frequent flyer programs. United Airlines has followed Delta in announcing changes to its Mileage Plus loyalty program, which makes changes to elite status qualification requirements. The United and Delta changes somewhat run counter to the changes American announced last year, which kind of democratized the status earning process by treating mileage or points channels pretty equally. Do you want to predict whether AA makes some tweaks now to their program? Any other trends you saw in the Delta and United changes that the industry might uh, follow? It didn't surprise me that United did this basically following Delta, but you bring up the right point, Chris, what's American going to do? I've had the belief for a little while that the pandemic changes what loyalty programs need to be. If there are fewer business travelers traveling or fewer business travelers traveling as often, and the rate of earning points is reducing, then almost by definition, the cost of offering upgrades and free seats and things like that also has to change. So as the world sort of learns what the post-pandemic business environment is like, It's forcing changes in the loyalty programs. And I think the best example of that would be to make the loyalty programs more relevant for a broader use of the customer base, not only sort of the road warrior frequent traveler. So I thought Americans' idea to treat mileage and points channels pretty equally was in that direction. Delta and United are making it harder to get to the elite statuses. Maybe they'll be able to offer more to that group when fewer people can get that group, and that might make it overall better for the fewer people who get there. But in my mind, that's inconsistent with making these programs relevant for a bigger group, even people who maybe don't fly quite as much. So I think this is very interesting. Um, I'm not sure Americans going to feel they have to change anything right away. But with United and Delta doing one thing and American doing something else, whether or not American holds and United and Delta back off a bit, or whether American sort of sees the value of what United and Delta have done and decided, well, act like the oligopoly that we are as it relates to big frequent flyer programs. So this is another one that we're going to have to watch pretty closely. And I don't know if you agree with my comments about where the loyalty programs need to go, Chris. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, it wasn't that long ago that Airlines, hotels, all kinds of travel were falling all over themselves to grant status or extend status, trying to keep the loyalty of their top tier customers who weren't able to travel or who didn't want to travel. And so um, this United and Delta move kind of 
Well, it does run counter to that. And, you know, American probably has nothing to lose to hang out there for a while and see if they're being different gives them an edge in the marketplace by, by saying, look, as long as you spend money within the American Airlines network, whether on a plane or with a credit card or, or any other of our, our partners, we're going to treat you like you're part of the family. So I think it'll be interesting to see how consumers and especially those travelers who often try to get top tier or some tier status in multiple carriers, how they respond. Well, more Airlines Confidential in just a moment with our featured guest, Steve Shore from Hertz. But first, let me thank Seabury Securities, a Seabury Capital Group company that boasts a 25-year track record of advising aviation clients around the world. Their award-winning and widely respected team has superior industry knowledge as well as an unmatched depth of relationships with decision makers in industry, finance, and government. Explore their global reach and scale at seaburysecurities.com. This portion of Airlines Confidential is sponsored in part by Sidley Austin. From the ramp to the boardroom, the destination law firm for leading airlines and aviation companies transforming the skies. Welcome back to Airlines Confidential. This week, we're going to talk about cars and cars at airports. Our guest is Steve Shore, the Vice President for Government Affairs and EV Strategy, Electric Vehicle Strategy, for Hertz. So Steve and I are old colleagues, and we're glad to have him at Airlines Confidential. Steve, welcome. Thank you, Chris. Thank you, Ben. It's great to be with you. So why don't you give our listeners a quick introduction about your background in the travel space and what you're doing today at Hertz? Sure thing. Yeah, I, I started my career uh, in government government affairs and public affairs, uh, and for the past ten years, represented uh, representatives in the travel industry, including the OTAs, TMCs, GDSs, and short term rental platforms, as part of the Travel Technology Association, a trade group for independent distributors of travel, uh, which led me to this great opportunity at Hertz. We've seen in the news about investments that Hertz is making in electrification of its fleet. So tell us about the scope, priorities, and strategies for that initiative, Steve. About a year ago, Hertz set out with a very bold strategy to begin the process of electrifying the fleet. Not only did we see the economic opportunity, but it's the right thing to do to reduce our carbon footprint further. As you look at where the vehicle manufacturers are going with their production schedules, at some point, they're going to stop making gas-powered vehicles. And so we're a first mover in this transition. And this process started again about a year ago when we um, have an arrangement where we had a, a deal with Tesla to acquire up to 100,000 electric vehicles for our fleet, followed by a deal with Polestar to acquire 65,000 electric vehicles. And just a few weeks ago, we announced a landmark deal with GM to acquire 175,000 electric vehicles over the next five years. So our commitment is clear and present. We are all in on electrification and bringing those vehicles to our customers in a way that um, serves their needs, but also reduces our carbon footprint and gives the customer a better experience. However, in doing all of that, it brings with it great challenges uh, associated with our operations. We have to rethink the way that we turn cars when people return them at the airport. 
We need to bring charging infrastructure and chargers into all of our facilities. And we're quite literally in the process of doing that in as many locations as we can as we're getting these vehicles in. So the broad strategy is in terms of our electrification right now, our short-term goal is that a quarter of our fleet will be electrified by the end of 2024 and growing from there. And we're just seeing great results in terms of the customer experience and the economics associated with EV rentals across the board. Steve, can you pull on that thread just a bit more since our listeners care most about airlines and airports and aviation? How much of the Hertz business is driven by airport traffic? Oh, a significant uh, portion. So historically, as, as you all know, our airport locations represent our highest volume of business. I would say that continues today, particularly for business travel, where we see you know significant history with our business travel corporate partners. Um, we do have several thousand non-airport locations that serve communities, but I think the airports remain an important component. And as we move forward in our electrification strategy, we view airports as kind of a transportation hub and then looking at what the future of electrification means for transportation in America broadly. Um, we've got a really robust rideshare program, which I look forward to telling you more about. But as, as airports begin to think about electrification and when their own carbon footprint, we fit nicely into that strategy and that plan. Um, the airports continue to be our most significant locations. We view ourselves as, as key partners for airports and work very closely with them, especially in this process of electrifying our fleet. It's critical that we work together to solve some of the logistical and operational challenges. As a follow-up to that, Steve, what do you think the implication of this electric vehicle initiative is for aviation, including what it means for the airports and airline passengers that rent cars? Well, the implications are that all airports are talking about uh, looking at their own carbon footprint. In fact, there's a big conference coming up, um, the Airports Going Green Conference, uh, where they're going to be talking about this. And I just view that because Hertz is a first mover and a leader on electrification, we're driving the conversation. In terms of electrification of an airport campus, it's not just the rental car companies, it's the shuttle buses, it's the ground service equipment for airlines and the catering vehicles. Uh, it's the uh, rideshare drivers and taxis who are coming and going and, and other passengers who are getting dropped off and picked up. And eventually it's airplanes. And so what we've really seen and what we're driving is a conversation about power supply, uh, what's the role of the utility and, and how much power is an airport campus going to need to really electrify and to reduce its carbon footprint. So what we're doing at an airport is a small example of what the airport's thinking in a grander scale. It's just that we're out front and we're driving that conversation right now. So for the aviation sector, as everyone's talking about reducing their carbon footprint and electrification, yeah, we're right in the middle of that as a key connector for every aspect, whether it's you know through the utilities, the customers, the travelers. Um, for the airline passengers, electric vehicles are just providing a, a better experience, frankly. Um, we're getting great um, feedback from our customers who may have never stepped in an EV before and, and renting one uh, gives them the ability to try one before they buy it. And for corporate travelers, which is a really important component to our business, we give corporations the ability to address their own carbon footprints 
by instructing or informing their employees to rent an electric vehicle when they're available. And so we're really trying to have an impact not only on the climate, but you know, making sure that the economics work, which they do, and bringing in that infrastructure to service the customer. And the air, airports have been good partners on that, although, again, there are some challenges associated with, with making this transition. So let's go and ask a follow-up on the customer side. I literally just rented a car from Hertz uh, in the last 24 hours. And in my list of cars available at prices, I didn't see an electric option yet. But at some point in the future, when somebody does that, will they see here are the regular cars and here are the EVs you could get? Is that the way it'll be displayed to consumers? Yeah, in fact, that's the way it is now. I'm guessing that wherever you rented from doesn't have electric vehicles for uh, offering. And the reason for that most likely is that uh, we, we don't have the charging infrastructure to support those vehicles. Um, just stepping back for a moment on that question, as we bring new EVs into our fleet, we're putting them in places where we can charge them. And so if we have a situation where we can't get chargers installed at our facility, let's say in a, in a parking garage like Reagan National Airport, where it's uh, construction is a challenge and, and, and power supply is an issue, then uh, we're sending those vehicles somewhere else. And we're having these conversations with airports. All the airports are telling us that they want EVs to be available at their facilities. And it's a chicken and egg, right? We need the charging infrastructure there to service the cars and make sure they're fully charged for the next customer. And we can't bring them there unless uh, we have that. And so what you probably experienced is, is uh, a place that currently doesn't have electric vehicles. But I will tell you that if you are looking for a vehicle at an airport that does, you'll see it very prominently displayed that electric vehicles are available at that location. So I've got another follow-up to that, and maybe this is obvious, but are you expecting the consumer to return the car fully charged like they would a tank of gas? Because to me, that would be a, if I've never rented an electric vehicle and don't really know how to charge them out in the in the field, that might be a drawback for me. Great question. Right now, all we're asking is for consumers to return the vehicle with at least 10% battery life left. And the reason for that is twofold. One is for safety. We want to make sure that they can get back to the airport without uh, draining their battery completely. And two, it's for battery health overall. So we're not, we're not asking consumers to recharge their vehicle before they bring it back. It also presents an operational challenge for us. Again, with the char charging infrastructure we need at airports, some consumers will return that car with 11% battery life left, and some will return it with 78% battery life left. And so we need to be able to turn those cars quickly, which requires fast chargers in the back and level two chargers in the garage when the cars are waiting for the next customer. So right now, Chris, to answer your question, no, we're not charging for power. We're just asking that the consumer brings them, brings them back with at least 10% battery life. We'll have more with Steve Scher in a moment. Airlines Confidential is sponsored in part by Sidley Austin, the destination law firm for leading airlines and aviation companies transforming the skies. From the ramp to the boardroom, Sidley provides the broadest range of legal services to clients on the most critical issues facing our industry today. Sidley combines unmatched experience with top-tier capabilities across a vast global footprint. Visit sidley.com aviation for more information. Rental cars are an important part of airport infrastructure in the context of raising revenue, right? They're a revenue-generating source at airports. 
Do you think airline and airport executives are, pardon the pun, like fully plugged into this plan and understand the ramifications? I think so. Uh, you know, you're correct that our concession fees are a big part of airport revenue. And again, I think there's a general sentiment by airport executives and airline executives on reducing our carbon footprint collectively. And to the extent that we can help that along the way through uh, our rental cars at the airport property, um, I think I think everybody's on board with the concept. Um, we also have to address some of the challenges like power, and um, we we need to do that together because it's not just Hertz that is planning to uh, electrify its fleet on a on an airport campus. It's everyone, and we can we need to work together with the airports and the airlines and all the businesses associated with coming and going and operating at the airport to make sure that we have sufficient power, we have the right infrastructure, we're servicing the customer in terms of giving them convenient and easy and affordable access to charging when and where they need it, not just the chargers that are behind our fence, but keeping the general public in mind, including rideshare drivers and taxis and others. Steve, can you talk about how you're marketing these cars to different consumer groups. Specifically, I'm wondering, is there a big price difference if you're a leisure customer to get in the EV? And on the business side, do you think there are companies that are going to encourage their employees to rent the EV, even if it is a little more expensive? Yeah, absolutely. On, on both of those fronts, I'll start with, um, you know, we have several consumer segments for our EV business and I'll start with business travel. We are absolutely seeing companies inform or instruct their employees through their travel management programs that if an electric vehicle is available for rent, then they should, even if it, the cost is slightly higher. And so the reason for that is, you know, that every corporation who has folks on the road is looking to reduce their own carbon footprint and we help them achieve that goal, even if it's a small portion of their overall carbon uh, landscape. And so giving business travelers access to electric vehicles is a key component. And we're seeing a significant uptake in uh, rentals of our electric vehicles from business travelers. For leisure travelers, uh, I think that's where, where we are right now on leisure traveler is those that are inclined, that are in tune with uh, a more eco-friendly uh, travel experience are looking for an electric vehicle. Uh, certainly, uh, we're seeing very high satisfaction rates for leisure travelers who, who want to utilize an EV. And, and for many who have never been in one, they get a chance to try it before they buy it. Now, just an aside here, in our announcement with General Motors a couple of weeks ago, uh, they're super excited in that we're going to have the full line of electric vehicles from GM in our fleet, which means different price points, different size vehicles, uh, everything from the Chevy Bolt all the way up to the Cadillac Lyric if you want a, a luxury vehicle experience. And so we're going to have that really exciting offering for our consumers and give them the ability to try different models. And I know that the manufacturers are especially excited about that because what better way to get consumers excited and interested in your product than giving them a chance to, to test drive it through a rental. And then the third, and I think one of the under, underlooked segments of our, of our EV business is our rideshare partnership. I'd like to tell you a little bit more about that. So we, we have a deal with Uber that allows drivers to rent an electric vehicle, a Tesla, from Hertz for their business. If you are a regular Hertz customer, you are prohibited from using that vehicle for business purposes. 
but we have a separate agreement with Uber that allows their drivers to rent an EV in a full-time basis. So they essentially are renting them on a weekly basis, uh, driving them full-time, and the feedback has been tremendously positive. Drivers are reporting that they're earning more money, particularly with high gas prices. Uh, again, as a, as a rental, they're not responsible for maintenance of the vehicle either. And so with higher gas prices, they're earning more money. The consumers are having a better experience and they're reporting higher tips. And so we've seen so far, just through this Uber partnership, over 25,000 electric vehicle rentals for rideshare drivers and more than 5 million trips completed. Those are electric vehicle trips that have replaced internal combustion engine trips. And so we're making a big difference in terms of our carbon footprint for miles on the road. I wasn't even aware of that until you just mentioned it. So that's a fascinating uh, way to get more people into these EVs and also for Hertz to expand their footprint. You talked about the challenges of building the charging infrastructure. Um, Any other obstacles you're trying to overcome with regard to electrifying your fleet and uh, getting these vehicles into more places? Yeah, so the charging infrastructure is one component of that, which is quite literally permits and construction and running power to the areas where we need it. Uh, but what we're seeing in, in is a more glaring challenge for us and, and, and everyone involved with electrification is actually capacity, uh, power capacity at airports. That is not to say that it's a power capacity issue in a grand scheme. It just means that the access to enough power near or at an airport is becoming you know, a bigger, a bigger concern. And as part of my job in government affairs, we've been talking to the Department of Energy, the Department of Transportation. Everyone is well aware of this issue and we're looking for ways to solve it. Uh, translation, uh, some government support in terms of funding mechanisms for airports to bring in additional power capacity will go a long way to expediting the conversion and the adoption of electric vehicles on airports. And so th- those are our biggest challenges right now. Um, we're also waiting for the manufacturers to deliver the vehicles. When we announced our deal with Tesla, it's not as if Elon Musk dropped off 100,000 vehicles at the port and said, here you go. Uh, they're coming in waves. And as I mentioned earlier, as we're getting those vehicles into our fleet, we're deploying them to areas, one, where there's demand, two, uh, where we have charging infrastructure. And again, our, our rideshare partnerships in urban areas is a big part of that. Uh, and so we're we're seeing a lot of our EVs end up in in typical, you know, car rental larger markets, you know, Orlando, LAX, uh, Denver, and you know, large airports and communities where they're being utilized in a in a very significant way. This is maybe a dumb question, but where's the opportunity or the synergies for more solar at airports to help power EVs? We're looking at that. Yeah, you know, we're looking at all different ways to address the power supply needs and actually and, and also address, you know, where the power comes from. Right. If you really want to look at the sustainability or the carbon footprint of electrification, you've got to consider where the power is coming from. And I know that's a hot topic of conversation in this realm. And um, so we're looking at solar. We're looking at hydrogen. We're looking at on-site battery solutions that allow us to charge our vehicles in a, in a more eco-friendly way. Everything's on the table at this point, Chris. The old, uh, the old cliche of we're building the airplane as we're flying it, it applies here. Um, so we're, we're quite literally, we're testing, we're looking at all those different options and the airports are too. 
And so if there's a solar solution that makes sense for us and, and, and brings us enough power and the economics makes sense, we're 100 percent looking into those opportunities for sure. Steve, let's talk about a customer who's never driven an EV before. I mean, we all know that we're going to be driving them eventually, but some of our listeners probably haven't driven them yet. So if I've only driven a gas guzzler in my life and I rent from you, can I just hop in the driver's seat and go? Or do you at Hertz need to, you know, even do a 30 second training or anything? Great question. And we've actually gone above and beyond that. We created an internal curriculum for our employees, EV University, that is meant to not only train our staff on how to train a customer, uh, everything from opening the car handle door. If you've ever uh, walked up to a Tesla, the car handle door is flush with the side of the car. And a lot of people just don't know. And you push one side of it to pop, make it pop out. So it's literally, quite literally starting with opening the door. Our staff is trained to sit in the vehicle, show the customer how the touchscreen works, what the different functions and features are. And so we're giving that customer the training that they need to feel comfortable uh, driving that vehicle. Secondly, we need to make sure that the customer is comfortable with how to charge the vehicle and where to charge the vehicle. And that's a big important component to what we're building out as far as our, our app and giving the customer the ability to know where the chargers are, when to charge, and um, giving them a, an experience that is kind of a, uh, I guess, a, a closed loop experience where they can visit a Hertz charging facility and perhaps either reserve time if they need it, or perhaps at some point down the road, we can offer them lower rates uh, for charging if they need it while they're in rent. And as part of that, we recently announced a partnership with BP Pulse, which is um, a new uh, electrification arm of BP to build out our charging network for our customers, our rideshare drivers and the general public. So alleviating what they call charge anxiety is a big component to this. That dovetails nicely with what's happening for the general public generally on charging infrastructure uh, with the federal funding and everything else that's happening in that world. Well, next time I rent from Hertz, I'm certainly going to look for the EV option and try it. And one of the things for consumers is just great about this is that they can try before they buy, like you said. And if I'm thinking of buying an EV at some time in the future, why not try a few different models by renting them and see which ones you like? Well, you're, you're singing from our song sheet, Ben. That's exactly what we believe is going to happen. Consumers are going to be excited about the opportunity to do just that. And uh, yeah, uh, we think the economics are, are there and, and the customer experience is going to be there and just you know positive trends for the future. Well, Steve, consistent with uh, your remarks about EV University, thanks for taking us to school about Hertz's plans here. Um, lots of changes in, in the works that's going to impact airports. And uh, this was a useful conversation for us. So thanks for your time. Thank you both. It was a pleasure to be with you. And I look forward to uh, catching up with you soon. And we'll be right back with more Airlines Confidential. Promotional consideration by thearchive.net, the hub of the history of commercial aviation. Thearchive.net is now boarding. This portion of Airlines Confidential is sponsored in part by Aerodata, the leading edge in flight performance data. Visit aerodata.co 
Aerodata is a Garmin company. Welcome back to Airlines Confidential, and thanks to Steve Schur from Hertz for making us all smarter about electric vehicles that will be populating more and more airports. I personally look forward to renting one from Hertz soon. Now it's time for some listener questions. Please keep your questions coming via email at questions at airlinesconfidential.com or visit airlinesconfidential.com and follow the prompts to submit your question or comment. Ben, first I want to read a note from listener Adam Thompson, who's a neighbor of yours in Arlington, Virginia. And he confirmed our speculation on the reason why a small town like Ketchikan, Alaska, has so many flights operated by Alaska Airlines. Adam writes, most of the route work done by Alaska Airlines inside the state of Alaska are freight services. Before the combis were retired, the majority of those flights were on combis, with aviation being the principal method of delivering goods to most of the state year-round. That's what we kind of thought, and that's what we talked about. So, Adam, thanks for that, and hoping that a listener can also educate us more on the use of dry ice and airline catering, which was also a topic we discussed uh, last week or so after a listener wrote us. And then Jim from San Diego also wrote us about our discussion about the Allegiant Airlines Q3 loss. He writes, Ben and Chris, regarding Allegiant's Q3 loss, which you guys were talking about, it's pretty simple. Almost all of it was attributed to Hurricane Ian with $38.5 million in property damage and loss of revenue to its Sunseeker Resort in Charlotte Harbor, Florida. So, Ben, I guess my question to you is, does that still justify Allegiance loss for the quarter? You know, this is a really good point brought up by Jim, and thank you. You're right. The company did sort of blame that resort to Ian, but is Allegiant an airline or is it a travel company? They've been trying to have it both ways for many, many years, and this is a case where they still stick out as a low-cost airline in the U.S. that did not make money this quarter when other low-cost carriers, including those with lots of capacity in Florida, did make money. Now, what those other airlines don't have is the ancillary businesses like the resorts that Allegiant has. So they've used the travel nature of their company being more than just an airline as a real strength of the company when they talk to investors. Here's a case where maybe it looks like they're trying to have it both ways. They're trying to say, well, don't look at the airline loss here because it's really the other piece. So thanks again, Jim. You're right that they did say this, but I don't think it absolves them from having an airline that lost money when most everyone else did either. And then, Ben, speaking of Florida, we got this question from Scott in Newport News, Virginia. Ben, I know you can't talk about the JetBlue Spirit merger, so I don't want to ask you that, but I'm hoping you can explain what might be up with the route cancellations or suspensions Spirit announced in early November. Something like 37 routes, lots of them to and from Florida, but almost all of them touching some kind of warm weather destination. One of the reasons cited was limitations on the Jacksonville in route ATC center, but that seems rather dubious. Why are they the only airline affected? 
Good question, Scott. I don't think they are the only airline affected, but the thing is they were more aggressive in the amount of capacity they were loading for that time period. So unlike other airlines with a lot of capacity in Florida, they had loaded more growth in that, and they've pulled back on some of that growth in part because of the Jackson ATC Center, but as you suggest, that's affecting everyone. I think it's more related to delays in delivery of new aircraft, and they just don't have enough airplanes to do all the flying they planned. So my guess is they scrolled through their forecasts profit loss statement and said, let's cancel the flights that we're going to produce the least amount of earnings for this period, knowing that most, if not all, will be added back once they have all the planes they need. But in the meantime, let's fly the stuff that makes the most money when we're constrained on airplanes. I agree with you, Ben. Uh, I guess this is one of those, if you fly too close to the sun, you get burned kind of a thing. But I agree. They put in a lot of capacity into Florida and sunny spots. And when you don't have the planes or the pilots, you got to pull back somewhere. Well, that's right. Chris, as we wrap up here, I'm going to give my shout out to Southwest Airlines, who ran one of the most creative promotions I've seen, where on their flight from Long Beach to Hawaii, gave everyone in the plane a ukulele in their seat and sort of lessons on how to play it. They got some pushback on social media about this. Maybe the flight was just too loud and everyone was strumming on their ukuleles on the way to Hawaii and maybe it drove everyone crazy. But I think this promotion that they did with the Guitar Center was a real creative way to sort of push the Guitar Center, their partner, do something really unique for people who are going to have a lot of fun on Hawaii, associated with something cultural there. And I just thought it was a great idea to try something like this. So go Southwest for putting yourself out there with the ukuleles. Yeah, I chuckled about that one. And probably anyone under 20 had their earpods on from before they even got on the plane. They didn't even hear it. They didn't even hear it. So I'm going to give my shout out to Turkish Air for making special accommodations for the world's tallest woman to take her first airplane trip this fall from Istanbul to San Francisco by removing six seats so she could fit comfortably. Rumesa Gelgi is listed in the Guinness Book of World Records as the world's tallest female, and she stands seven feet tall. Ben, good thing she didn't want to fly Spirit. They would have had to take it up, probably 12 seats. So anyway, very good work at Turkish, and it was a nice story to see. Well, that's it for Airlines Confidential this week. We'll see you next week. Thanks for listening. This podcast is produced by Mass Media. Info at massmedia.net.